Downloads of this show are available on Potomatic.com and the Potomatic mobile app. Listen, all you New Yorkers. Hello. I hope no one's eating dinner. Something like that. What's up, everybody? It's 10 o'clock on Monday night, which means it's time for the next best thing. Dear Jesus. I'm your host, Jonathan B. Lerner, and I'll be with you for the next two hours. Well, get ready. Don't go anywhere. We have a great, 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 great show lined up for you tonight. I can't even contain myself. But before we get to any of that, we'd like to kick the show off by doing what we always do, and that is review all of the great and the not-so-great things that have happened on... This Day in History. Today is September 11th, and on this day in history, in 1789, Alexander Hamilton was appointed by U.S. President George Washington to be the first Secretary of the Treasury. On this day in 1910, in Hollywood, the first commercially successful electric bus line opened. Wow! On this day in 1941, in Arlington, Virginia, the groundbreaking ceremony for the Pentagon took place. On this day in 1952, Dr. Charles Huffnagel successfully replaced a diseased aorta valve with an artificial valve made of plastic. On this very day in 1954, the Miss America Beauty pageant made its network TV debut on ABC, Miss California won. And of course, on this day in 2001, in the United States, four airliners were hijacked and intentionally crashed. Two of them hit the World Trade Center, which collapsed shortly after in New York City. One hit the Pentagon in Arlington, Virginia, and another one crashed into a field in Pennsylvania. About 3,000 Americans perished. It is a day we will all remember solemnly for the rest of our lives. That's what happened on this day in history. And who knows, perhaps we'll make history right here tonight on Radio Free Brooklyn and be studied for years to come. But who are we kidding? Probably not. You're listening to The Next Best Thing. Stay tuned. Oh yeah. Holy sweet mother of God, it is 10 o'clock on a Monday night, so you know what that means. Is it time for your favorite show ever? No! But it is time for the next best thing. I'm your host, Jonathan B. Lerner, keeping you company every Monday night from 10 until midnight right here on Radio Free Brooklyn. Can you hear me? One second. Testing. One, two, three. Are we on? Great. Anywho... Before we get into what's going on in the news, what's going on in the world, let's do the housekeeping that we always have to take care of. Let's just get it out of the way right off the top. You can tweet at us. We are at Next Best Radio. That's at Next Best Radio. Go ahead and like us on Facebook. Follow us on Facebook. A lot of stuff gets posted on our Facebook page, stuff that we talk about in any given episode, information, links to pertinent sites, all that stuff usually goes up on our Facebook page. That's facebook.com slash NBT radio. Also, if you're really feeling like you want to go all out and write more than 140 characters, more than something you'd feel comfortable posting on a Facebook wall, you can always feel free to send us an email. We are at nextbestthing at radiofreebrooklyn.org. And lastly, we do ask you to remember that we are fully listener and producer supported. If you like what you hear on Radio Free Brooklyn, if you like what you hear tonight, 
please consider going to our website, going to this show's page, and donating a little something-something to keep us in business. If you like what you hear tonight, well, a donation could ensure that you will get to hear more next week and the weeks after that. Uh, if you feel so inclined, you can go to rfb.nyc slash nbt. Again, that's rfb.nyc slash nbt. Oh, man, that was exhausting, wasn't it? It was for me. I'm sure it was for you, too. So, that's all the housekeeping I can think of right now. If I've forgotten anything... Nobody cares. Nobody cares. Nobody cares. Good. This land is your land, and this land is my land. From California to the New York Island, from Redwood Forest to the Gulf Stream waters, this land was made for you and me. When the sun comes shining, then I was strolling, and the wheat fields waving, and the dust clouds rolling, the voice coming chanting, and the fog was lifting. This land was made for you and me. One of the most dramatic events in New York City in the 1960s was the construction of the World Trade Center. Design and construction would take years and efforts of thousands of people. Sunshine throughout, low humidity, really a splendid September day. The afternoon temperature about 80 degrees, great weather for the primary election. Tonight, clear and cool, low 60 and It's begun to sound like some sort of a cliche, but really, September 11th started out like every other day. Good morning, America. I'm Charles Gibson. I'm Diane Sawyer, and it's Tuesday, September 11th, 2001. It is lunchtime in London, 5 a.m. in Los Angeles, and 8 a.m. here in New York, live from the CNN Financial News Headquarters. It is beautiful outside, perfect September day with lots of sunshine. Other than that, it's kind of quiet around the country. We like quiet. Is that American 11 trying to call? We have some claims. Just stay quiet and you'll be okay. We're adjourning to the airport. The pilot, everyone's been stabbed. They're in the back of the airplane. They're not... Oh, the hijackers are in the cockpit. Oh, no. This is CNN Breaking News. This just in, you are looking at a, obviously a very disturbing live shot there. That is the World Trade Center, and we have unconfirmed reports this morning that a plane has crashed into one of the towers of the World Trade Center. There is a major incident in Lower Manhattan. We just got a report in that there's been some sort of explosion at the World Trade Center in New York City. Apparently, a plane has just crashed into the World Trade Center. Into the World Trade Center. We have serious news of a major possible air crash in the United States. Hey, I should make a, uh, I should, I don't mean to interrupt the fun, but uh, this is a breaking news story, a serious news story. What? A plane has crashed, hold it, into the World Trade Center. You're kidding! The World Trade Center is on fire, <gasps> which is the... What the, is going on? Really? Let me look out my window. Take a look, seriously. Holy crap. You know, That's you know, Howard, I, I was just there. I was at a wedding right on, right there. It was, it was it like one of those private places? Oh, dude. You see it? Dude, it, it's just hot. Oh, my God. I got to go out on my roof. This is incredible. <laughs> 
See ya. The whole thing is on fire. Yeah. You're right. I mean, not a little fire. No, it's huge. Oh, it's huge. Yeah. What if a plane right. hits a building? I got I to gotta, I gotta run. Yeah. So it's just interesting to hear the various media, various people at the moment we're all finding out about something that we'll remember for the rest of our lives. I remember, as I'm sure you do, what you were doing at that exact moment. I'll never forget it. How could we? On the morning of September 11th, 2001, it was a Tuesday, and I was in the eighth grade. I was 13 years old, about to turn 14, like a week later. Just like I'm about to turn... Oh, God, no. Oh, God, no. Oh, God, no. 30. Oh, God, no. Now, Tuesday, September 11th, 2001, I am walking from my eighth grade English class down to World Cultures, and I'm very nervous and uncomfortable because we're taking a huge test that I had studied for, but that I just, there were tests that I took in this middle school harder than any test I ever took in college or ever in any other capacity, but that's not the point. So I was nervous. And as it happened, my entire eighth grade English class happened to be the same group. My whole English class was my world cultures class. And the group that was in world cultures while we were in English well, they switched, so we just switched. And as my group was walking down the stairs to World Cultures and they were walking up the stairs to English, they I remember very specifically, I looked at one friend of mine in particular. Her name was Liz Good, and she was holding her English book, and she said, Hi! An airplane just crashed into the World Trade Center. And I'm not going to lie, I was 13 years old. At first, I didn't even know what that was. I didn't know what exactly... She meant by that. And I'll tell you why. Not just because I was a stupid 13-year-old, but because growing up in elementary school, I was one of the taller guys. And on my basketball team for, I mean, seriously, from like first grade up and through up through seventh or eighth grade, I paired up with one other guy. We were the tall guys and everyone called us the Twin Towers. So I knew the World Trade Center strictly as the Twin Towers. So as I'm walking down to World Cultures and I hear my friend Liz Good say a plane hit the World Trade Center and we walk in and it's on the television. You can see the World Trade Center with smoke billowing out of it. And the second I saw it, I said, oh my God, that's those are the Twin Towers. I know those buildings. I, I mean, I know exactly what they're what those are. And so it's on as we walk into World Cultures and we're all glued to it, obviously. We're like, but we didn't really understand. Again, we were 13 years old and we didn't know what it meant. We just thought, you know, okay, was it an accident? But our teacher was very uncomfortable and concerned. She was a very smart, political, you know, she knew the world and she knew that probably was not just some accident. As we are looking at the screen, watching the smoke billow from the first tower that got hit, we see the second plane come into view and crash into the second tower. Now, we thought that that was either a replay or maybe a movie. We couldn't believe what we had just seen, especially my teacher. Now, here's where it gets a little crazy. So then she, I don't know how she was able to do this. I mean, I know how I get when I there's like a baseball game I want to watch or a football game or something. And if someone turns it off or if I can't hear it or something, I get very pissed and antsy and 
I like have to leave and I will watch and listen to what I need to watch and listen to. She somehow found it in her to turn the television off at that point and make us take that damn test. What? Can you believe that? Can you imagine seeing that happen? Kind of realizing that like maybe this isn't a mistake. Maybe this is like what's happening. And then having to focus and take a test. It's just crazy. So we take the test and then the period ends. We walk, I walk to physical science and they have the television on. And I have to tell you that test I took in world cultures, that was the last thing we did all day in physical science. We watched the news the entire time. Then I went to PE and I think we watched the news there. (laughs) Then I went to lunch and then we were all dismissed. They actually let us all leave which I, I figured what must have happened all around the country, but I know now that that's not accurate. That's not true. I can't believe that. But yeah, we, we were dismissed. So I went home to my home in Kansas City, and I remember sitting on the porch, sitting on our front yard, our front porch, and I was with, I think, my sister or someone. And by this time, the Pentagon had been hit. They had a plane had crashed in Pennsylvania, United 93. I thought, oh my God. I thought as a 13 year old, I thought is, I mean, what's happening? Like, is the world going to end? I mean, what's next? I was, I was scared. It was scary. I was genuinely scared. I thought, I thought it was like Armageddon. I really did. And what's interesting is that, you know, I was a 13 year old in Kansas city. You know, at the time in particular, there was nothing in Kansas City. I did actually start thinking about, okay, what is here in Kansas City that could could be a target for attack? I was like, okay, we have the Sprint World Headquarters. We have, you know, the headquarters for AMC movies. And I was like, could, could they come here? Would they want to come here? I mean, can imagine a 13-year-old kid thinking like that. I mean, that's that's kind of what changed that day. I mean, the world changed that day for sure. But it was scary. And the funny thing, it's not funny, but what's interesting is no matter how old you were, no matter where in the country you were, if you were alive on 9-11, you have a story. And, you know, I just told mine and it's, you know, it's pretty, it's pretty vanilla. I mean, it's, I wasn't in New York. I wasn't anywhere, you know, that got directly affected necessarily, but, but a lot of people were, and I know that, especially now living in New York, if you live in New York, you know someone who was probably here that day, and it just so happens that I do. Uh, someone I, you know, have worked for, and a friend of mine here now is, she was here that day, and not only was she here that day, but she was headed to work at the World Trade Center. Now, here's her story. So I worked on the 16th floor of Two World Trade Center, which was the one with uh, the antenna on it. And for my day, um, I was on the train going to work. And around my stop, which would have been Fulton, they said there's police action at Fulton. So you get off at the next stop, which was Brooklyn Bridge. So I got off at Brooklyn Bridge and so beautiful. It was a perfect day. It was actually the weather is just clear sky and not cold and not hot just gorgeous and when I got out of the train station there were a lot of people and they're all staring up at the towers and there was a big gaping hole in mine and then there was smoke coming out of the other one so at that point I would say my mind 
shut off and I went into a very strange state of stupidity and shock. So, I, you know, you know it's terrorism, but your mind can't comprehend what's happening. So I had all these weird desires to, like, connect with someone I knew. You couldn't call anyone. Cell phones weren't working. Pay phones, there was a line around the block for pay phones. So I just started uh, walking west. Like, I wanted so badly just to see someone I worked with or connect with someone. And I also wanted to see what would happen. Now, looking back, of course, that was stupid. And if you're ever in a vicinity of a terrorist attack, it's best to vacate the area, whether you are eight and a half months pregnant or not. Remember at one street corner, this guy was freaking out because you could see people jumping and out of the building. And that was really horrible, but also incomprehensible. I was sort of over towards West Broadway. And a cop came up to us at that point, and he's like, everyone go north of Canal. So I started to sort of shuffle north of Canal, but also um, wanted just to understand, and I was wanted to see what would happen. And um, so then I was watched, looking at the building, the one that I worked in, and so I was looking at where the fire was, and I was looking at where I worked. And I was like, well, they'll put it out. And, you know, like worst-case scenario, they'll let us go in get our stuff. You know, I was really scrambling to get ready for my maternity leave. I had to get my, I want my computer. You know, I want my stuff. And so then I'm looking at my building and all of a sudden it just starts to pancake. So actually my people in my company have really interesting stories because the other one got hit first. And so the fire marshal of the World Trade said, everyone stay in your building, stay in your building. And the, but we, our floor fire marshal for our company was like, hell no, we're out of here. Yeah, he evacuated them. But what happened was the second they set foot outside World Trade, the second plane hit. Oh. So they um, were covered in like fire and debris raining down on them and they had to run. But the thing about the 16th floor is that actually some people went down with him initially but then they forgot their purse and went back up, got their purse, and then evacuated. So actually being on the 16th floor, it was very easy to evacuate. It was just mass chaos. I mean, no one knew what was going on. The police didn't know. And then the craziest thing, I was at my friend's. We watched CNN, and then we took the subway home, you know, just like normal. You know, that night, I was in shock, like thinking about, like, my job. Like, what software do I need to do my job? And then, like, I went to Staples the next day and bought, like, a pencil and a folder. Like, I didn't, like, like know what to do. And contacting my team, like, felt, you know, I, it's just like, I, this is being dumb. Uh, I, we had, I had, a, you know, a couple of weeks where I was home. I don't remember doing much. Um, I volunteered for the Red Cross a little bit as a psychologist and then I was on maternity leave and then they uh, found an office space and in December you know we were in our new space there was so much kindness there was so much help there was so much support really I was impressive um, you could get money from the city for like materials and supplies you lost it was really inspiring how much the city came together now that was a friend of mine who was you didn't catch on she was pregnant at the time and so she was actually eight months pregnant when she was trying to like you know run from the falling building and she it's just unbelievable to me i mean she was headed to the world trade center now she worked on the 16th floor so she as she said it wasn't that hard to evacuate but 
friends of hers. I mean, like she had to have known other people in the building. Uh, she told me a good friend of hers, husband worked at Cantor Fitzgerald. Now, if you've never heard of that company, it's pretty famous for having lost virtually its entire workforce on 9-11. They were like on the 111th floor or something. That's where their office was. And it was just totally and completely wiped out. And her husband or her friend's husband gone. And, you know, those stories are chilling, chilling. And you do hear a lot of stories like that. Like my friend, Lucky. Lucky she wasn't there. Lucky she hadn't gotten to work yet. You know, how crazy is it? It's interesting to me that she says that at the end of that day, they rode the subway home. I figured the subway would have just been shut down. I figured the whole city would be shut down. So that's kind of cool that they didn't. I mean, it's kind of cool that the city wasn't completely brought to its knees. But but yeah, it's interesting. You do hear a lot of stories like that where I was headed to the World Trade Center or I had been there the day before or stuff like that where it's like a close call, but they're fine. Well, tonight, as you'll find out, as you'll hear, there are also stories like that just like that, except on the other end of the spectrum. Someone who was only in New York for one day, except it happened to be that day. And they happened to be at the World Trade Center that hour. And it's just, it's very difficult to listen to. But I think that it's important to remember this event, not just as a national tragedy and as a something that happened to us as a country, but, you know, almost 3,000 people died. So 3,000 people lost their lives. 3,000 families lost someone that they loved, a, a brother, a mother, a daughter, a sister, or any, like, they lost someone important to them at the drop of a hat. And I know how that feels, and it is, you never really recover from it. And if it was at the hands of someone else, uh, I mean, it's incomprehensible. But it is interesting, and I think... You know, in 2001, it wasn't the digital age that we live in today, but the fact that we're able to look back on news reports and audio or radio broadcasts from the time and stuff like that, and just, it's all so documented, hour by hour, minute by minute. It is so interesting to look back on a historical perspective. And the Today Show, I, you know, I've kind of made like a tradition of watching the Today Show broadcast of September 11th, like once a year, because there is so much in there. And one of the moments that you, that always sticks with me from that broadcast is when they're talking to a woman, uh, a producer who lives down by the World Trade Centers, and as they are on the phone with her, the second plane hits. The air is filled with hundreds of thousands of pieces of paper that are just sort of floating like confetti. Um, the area is swarmed with emergency vehicles um, and sirens. Have and you obviously, seen... we're very sensitive to this kind of thing in this neighborhood. Elliot, have you, of course, because of the incident that occurred in the early 1990s, have you seen any any evidence, Elliot, of, of people being taken out of the building? Uh, you say that emergency vehicles are there, understandably so, but of course the major concern is human oh loss. I mean, do you know if there were many people in the building? Oh, another one just hit. Something else just hit. A very large plane just oh. flew directly over my building, and there's been another collision. Can you see it? I yes. can see it on this shot. Oh, my. Something else has you just... You know what? We just saw a plane circling the building. It is in the other 
We just saw a plane circling the building a second ago on the shot right before I that. I think there may have been another impact. Can you tell? I just heard another very loud bang and a very large plane that might have been a DC-9 or a 747 just flew past my window, and I think it may have hit the Trade Center I, again. Uh, I mean, we lived it. Could you hear that? So you hear her react. Oh, another one just hit. And then they cut away and they actually cut back to the live feed of the World Trade Center and they see this fireball and you can hear the cast and crew of the Today Show, oh my God, like react. I mean, this is real, like as this was happening. And even more so than that, there is a, they were interviewing people, live witnesses, you know, all throughout the morning. And, you know, some people worked for them. Some people happened to be on vacation, but whatever. But like, I don't know how they were finding all these live witnesses. But at one point they talked to a young man named Ollie. And this was after both planes had hit. And his, you when he starts the conversation, when they bring him in, you hear him being, trying, being very matter of fact. He's just trying to be professional and relay information. This is what's happening. This is what I saw. But you just hear him as he's telling he's he's telling the world what he's just seen. You hear the anguish and fear come over him, and it is just a very real moment. And gosh, it's kind of like sums up how we were all feeling that day. Ali Eberhard is another witness who is on the ground. Ali, can you hear me? Yes. Hello. Please tell me what you're seeing. Well, um, I live in Lower Manhattan. I face the North Tower, the north side, where the first plane crashed into the building. And right now, there's a lot of chaos on the ground, a lot of emergency vehicles. Everyone from the World Financial Center has exited and is walking north up to Battery Park North. There's just mass and mass of people uh, walking uh, north uptown of Manhattan. Uh, I was happened to look on the first tower and I actually saw people waving where the first plane crashed through and then it was unbelievable seeing this second jet come crashing into the second tower. What is going on? Oh, I mean, gosh, gee, it's, it's emotional just listening to him because you, what is, I mean, that's how we were all feeling. What is going on? What is happening? And as I was saying, you know, with television, with all of the, I mean, think about it today, like with Twitter, I mean, everything, even back then we didn't have Twitter, but everything is documented. And when we look back now, 16 years later, we can trace every step of how this happened, why this happened, as this happened. And I think that's important that people do know that because, hey, you know, if we don't know how it happened... How will we know how to prevent it the next time? But as it was happening, we were all watching it on television. But other people, other people who are still alive to tell the story, well, they were experiencing it on a whole nother level. 7.59 a.m. American Airlines Flight 11 climbs into the Boston skies. Its route to L.A. will take it due west. Looking after the economy class cabin is number three flight attendant, Betty Ong. With the flight only half full, the trip should be fairly relaxed. 15 minutes after takeoff. 
American 11 Boston, this is Boston, will you hear me? Boston Air Traffic Control loses radio contact with the flight. American 11 Boston, this is Boston, can you hear me? Despite multiple attempts to contact the crew for 10 minutes, there's no response. With thousands of flights in the sky every day, this is not an unusual occurrence. But at 8.24, air traffic control overhear an in-flight announcement from the pilot's cabin. The message is clearly intended for passengers only. And it's immediately interpreted as suspicious by an air traffic controller in Boston. 8.28. The report comes to Ben Slidey. Our experience with a hijack uh, is they usually ended benignly, and I wasn't overly concerned about the fact that a, a hijack had occurred. Okay, now, when I first heard that, I was like, what? You weren't overly concerned that a hijack had occurred? I mean, that seems crazy to me. But then I was informed, and you find out later in this documentary, but back in those days, hijacks happened almost, dare I say, fairly often. And as he just pointed out, you know, they usually ended pretty benignly. Uh, people, they just wanted, I don't even know what they wanted. Usually the passengers were never even brought into it. But still, I, you know, that's what they say, but... Still, the idea of a, a passenger airliner being taken over and this air traffic control guy is like, yeah, no big deal. I wasn't concerned. That that seems crazy to me. Maybe I, maybe that's just me. 8.34 a.m. On board, Betty Ong, in desperation, has managed to contact her airline, calling the reservation center in Raleigh, North Carolina. My name is Betty Ong. I'm number three on flight 11. I think we're getting hijacked. Can anybody get up to the cockpit? No. The cockpit is not answering their phone, and the door won't open. We don't know who's up there. And um, our number one has been stabbed, and our five has been stabbed. 8.35. The plane is not responding to air traffic controllers. And for the last few minutes, it's been deviating from its route towards New York. The audio of Betty Ong and the audio that you heard, we have some planes, just stay quiet, we're going back to the airport. God, just hearing. So, you know, we've been, we heard a few newscasts, we heard from some live witnesses on the day of, but hearing these people, the terrorist, hearing his voice, you know, he sounds pretty normal. He said, you know, there are plenty of people here in New York City who sound like that. And Betty Ong, and she's trying to stay calm. She's being very professional, but hearing her voice and knowing. Now we know what happened to her. Ugh, it's just heart-wrenching. And, and you think, I don't know, maybe she thought it was going to end benignly. I don't know. God knows that by the time the third or fourth plane crashed, they knew. Why do you think United 93 crashed in a field somewhere instead of into the Capitol building? Because they knew by that time that there was no hope. They were not going to land anywhere. You know, they were headed for something and they needed to take some action. But Betty Ong, they, she was on American Flight 11. It was the first flight to hit anything. So she probably had some hope. But either way, in a situation like that, for her to 
keep her composure and to stay calm is, is pretty unbelievable. But as we all know, as time went on, eventually they lost contact. The last reported sighting of American Airlines Flight 11 is just north of Manhattan, New York City. 8.43 a.m. On board American 11, flight attendant Betty Ong has been doing her best to let people on the ground know what's happening on the plane. Is anybody still there? that time the plane had already crashed into the north tower betty was gone and god i mean it's like you hear it's like in real time it's it's just crazy now one thing i do want to you know get to because i think it matters is before we get into more of the personal stories is how this happened because well this was huge and this was catastrophic and this you know before september 11 2001 this was something that we never dreamed of i mean like as someone who was born in 1987 i had never heard of anything i mean like i'd heard of stuff like this maybe in history but this was not something that we thought ever could happen here at the time i mean it was just something we never would have dreamed of so how did it happen how did we let this happen but how did the most sophisticated security network in the world fail to confront this well-known threat and prevent the hijackings and their tragic consequences? The United States spends billions on military and intelligence systems to safeguard the nation. Question whether those systems could have stopped the 9-11 plotters. Almost two years before the attack, a CIA surveillance operation in the Yemen establishes that two of the hijackers, Al-Midhar and Al-Hazmi, have strong terrorist connections. Midhar's family's phone had been intercepted, so there was solid information linking Midhar to uh, Al-Qaeda and Hazmi to Midhar. Some months later, the CIA eventually tracked Midhar to Dubai. Agents break into his hotel room. They discover that Midhar has a visa which enables him to enter and exit the United States at will. Within days, they are tracked to Kuala Lumpur, Malaysia, where one of the pair is photographed at an Al-Qaeda meeting. There had been a meeting in Malaysia that had been surveilled. And then they lost the trail. Up to this point, the system has worked. 
the CIA has identified a foreign threat to the United States. But here is where the plot slips through the cracks in the U.S. intelligence system. If Al-Mirar uses his visa to operate on U.S. soil, handling him becomes the responsibility of the FBI. But until Mirar's in the USA, the CIA maintain an exclusive interest in him and will not share classified details of his case. This lack of communication between agencies is not an oversight. It's a matter of policy. Yeah. That's a little disturbing, isn't it? The CIA and the FBI don't work together and actually try and thwart one another. At least that's how it used to be. I don't know how it is today. God only knows how it is today with the leadership we have. But that's a problem. They were trailing these guys. They had a lot of intel on them. And then once they went from being out of the country to in the country, you would think that would up the, not surveillance, but that would up the awareness of them and and whatnot. Well, yes, we, they were linked to Al-Qaeda. Yes, it should have upped the surveillance. But instead, it went from being the CIA's job to the FBI's job, and the CIA doesn't share information with the FBI, so good luck to you. That's where this all started. That's how this all started. Go on, sir. Go on. 14 days to disaster. The FBI's own sources tell them of the potential threat of an Al-Qaeda attack, and the FBI conducts its own investigation. We knew something was being planned by Al-Qaeda, and, uh, and they were known uh, Al-Qaeda uh, operatives. Two men with known links to Al-Qaeda are in the United States, but the CIA still isn't sharing intelligence on them. Al-Midhar and Al-Hazmi are not found. Knowing that these people were residing in the United States would have been of tremendous investigative interest to the FBI. September 11th, 2001. Two hours from disaster. Five men check into American Airlines Flight 11, bound for Los Angeles. Three of them are flagged by the Computer-Assisted Passenger Pre-Screening System, or CAPS. The computerized algorithm uses factors such as age, nationality, and travel records to identify potentially high-risk individuals. If a passenger is selected by the CAP system for scrutiny, um, it involved on that day uh, a more deeply searching um, questioning of his itinerary and where he's going, potentially what his bags are containing. None of the hijackers are on the FAA's no-fly list, which would bar them from getting on the plane. And several of the hijackers board the plane carrying box cutter knives on their person or in their hand luggage. There were regulations uh, about the blade length. If it was less than four inches, for example, it was not considered to be necessarily a dangerous weapon. Over the next 45 minutes, 14 more hijackers check into three more flights at cities across the northeast US. Three more of them are picked up by caps and several of the hijackers are also carrying knives. And yet, all of them are allowed to board their flights. 
So what does that mean? Does that make you appreciate the TSA more? I don't know. I don't really think so. I mean, because here's the thing. Feeling me up at the airport doesn't really... I mean, these guys should have been... These guys had been surveilled <laughs> for being members of Al-Qaeda. Uh, so how is feeling me up going to... I don't know. They were feeling people up at the airport back then. I, I just don't know. It seems remarkable to me that they were able to get on these planes with knives. I, I, yeah, I think that policy has probably changed, but still, it's just hard to believe. It's hard to believe that all of this happened, frankly. 32 minutes before first impact. The hijackers make their move. If the hijackers demanded entry to the cockpit, the protocol at that point was open the door, let them in. The theory was we don't want to risk anyone's life. Hold on! What? Open the door, let them in because we don't want to risk anyone's life? How does that make sense? Open the door, let them in because if they crash the plane, we'll all live. I don't, I don't get that. I don't get that at all. Again, the theory doesn't allow for a suicide mission. The 19 hijackers take over four passenger jets and turn them into guided missiles. From this moment, there is nothing any airline or air traffic controller can do to stop them. The last line of defense is seemingly the U.S. military, the biggest, best-equipped air force in the world. But if they're going to act, they have to know that there is a threat. Correct. That would help. Man, sure makes you angry at the government, doesn't it? Not even at the government for, and I'm not even talking about an individual. I mean, yes, we all know that George W. Bush was given a briefing one morning that said, like, Osama bin Laden determined to crash airliners into skyscrapers in the United States. But I'm talking about the bureaucracy that was in, that was kind of designed. I mean, come on, we got to act now. And as you'll find, it was really, at this point, it was really too late. And there was an existing hijacking protocol by which the military would be contacted uh, and um, potentially fighter jets would be scrambled. Going by the book, air traffic controllers had to contact the FAA controllers in Washington. Then a chain of communications would follow before authority to scramble jets could be given. Had this protocol occurred on 9-11, the fighter jets could still have been sitting on the tarmac long after the fourth plane had crashed. Unlike the bureaucracy that hampered the CIA and FBI, ATC threw away the rulebook. An air traffic controller was so concerned, he called direct to a local airbase in Rome, New York. Yes, one second. Colonel Bob Maher has to handle the situation. The first call we got was from the line controller at Boston Center saying, I've got a problem here and I need more help. I'm going to go to the military and get it. Eight minutes to disaster. The military have been notified, but that doesn't trigger an automatic armed response. Ma still requires an order from a superior officer before he can scramble planes. 
The prompt actions of the quick-thinking air traffic controller hit the brick wall of military bureaucracy. My hat's off to him because he was taking an initiative that really wasn't reflected along the way up the chain later on. Ma waits for authorization. Minutes later, he consults with his immediate superior and they agree they can't wait any longer. The order to scramble planes came from Rome, New York, and the commander in Rome said, I'll get the authorization from above later. We have to do this now. Seconds to disaster. Ma orders two jets to scramble. Since the end of the Cold War, America's rapid response force has been reduced. Just four jets are on standby to defend half of America's east coast. The nearest are at Otis Air Force Base on Cape Cod in Massachusetts, 250 kilometers from New York City. As the first passenger airliner flies into the World Trade Center, the pilots are still waiting for the all clear. The F-15s only take off from Otis seven minutes after the first attack hits. Pretty unbelievable, isn't it? So they're talking about how someone at air traffic control or in the military took initiative and said, screw this, we have to act now. Well, even then, as you just heard, the first fighter jet didn't leave the tarmac until seven minutes after the first plane hit. And remember, there was only like 15 minutes between the first and the second planes. Gosh, I mean, that's crazy. Is that not crazy? But here's another question that I have, and this is something that we would have to, you know, really kind of wrestle with is, okay, so let's say, so let's say that everything went perfectly and we got fighter jets up before American Airlines Flight 11 was even able to hit the first tower. Okay, so then what happens? Because then you're put in a position where, all right, so what do we do? Do we shoot down this commercial airliner full of innocent Americans? Well, you might have to. I mean, like, you might have to because, I mean, you can't let it crash into the World Trade Center. Or do you, because they were bound and determined to crash into the World Trade Center. If they knew that wasn't going to happen... Well, as we know, with the plane that crashed in Pennsylvania, they were bound and determined to crash somewhere. So I was going to say maybe if they knew they, wouldn't, they weren't going to be able to hit the Trade Center because they were being targeted by fighter jets and weren't going to be shot down if they got close to it, maybe they would just give up and land. But we, I don't think that would happen. You know, who knows how this could have gone? All we know is how it went and what happened and what it's been like since. Now... All right, so what we've done so far is we've taken a look back at what we saw on the news as it happened. You've heard my story. You heard my friend Maria's story. We've gone through how this happened and what the timeline was like, at least for the first plane. There's one kind of dimension here that we are, that we don't get to see. You know, when we, when we think about this experience we remember what we saw on the news. It's a visual experience. It's a visual document, if you will. There are photographs. There are memories. We know what we saw. But what about the people that were in those buildings? 
what were they seeing? I mean, how lucky are we not to know, to be perfectly honest, but there is, there is some evidence of what maybe they were experiencing. It's not visual, obviously, but when those planes hit, especially the first one, everybody in that building grabbed the phone. They started calling 911. They started calling 311. They started calling their families. They started calling anyone and everyone, not just to say I'm in a building that has been hit by a plane. They didn't know it had been hit by a plane. They really didn't. Most of them thought a bomb had gone off. Some thought there was just an explosion. They didn't know what the hell was going on, and they couldn't get any information. They were completely in the dark, literally and metaphorically. And a lot of those conversations are recorded. And they are absolutely devastating. Now, the voice of someone, you know, when you think of the people you love, whether it's a spouse, boyfriend, girlfriend, mom, dad, sister, brother, nephew, whatever, when you think of the people you love, everybody, and this is really, everyone has a scent. And I don't mean like, you know, a an odor. I mean, everyone has their own personal scent and it's not a cologne. It's not a deodorant. It is their own personal smell. Everyone also has, everyone has a very unique voice. No two voices are the same. And when you lose someone, those are the things that you long for. You miss their voice. You miss their smell. You miss their laugh. And sometimes I was just talking to my aunt about this two days ago. Uh, my dad passed away in 2000 and it's astounding to me that like I can't find any recordings of his voice, which is really, truly bizarre because he was a physician. And I specifically remember going with him sometimes to the hospital and he would go on rounds and he had a little dictaphone that he would literally read his notes into. And I remember I'd always kind of laugh about it because he would, he would speak the punctuation as well because it was so that someone could transcribe it later. And so he'd be like, uh, the pulmonary artery and the period and the comic period. Exclamation mark. So I saw him record his voice. But all those tapes, I have the dictaphone. I have the dictaphone that he always used. I can't find any of the tapes. It's just, it's remarkable. And I tell you, because I know how much you long, I would give anything for a recording of his voice. Anything. So these people who lost loved ones on 9-11, as you'll hear, some of the recordings are devastating and heartbreaking. But you know what? I guarantee you, they cherish them and they are so happy to have them. The message that he left for me meant everything to me. I clung to it. I listened to it repeatedly in the days after. Everybody has told me that has lost loved ones, you lose the sound of their voice. I've probably listened to the message hundreds of times. It's available anytime I want to play it back. It's there. I hear it and I, I know it. I'm still very fragile to listen to it. And so I'm comforted to know it's there, but I don't, I don't listen to it. 
see, that's interesting too. So they're right there in those three people that you just heard. You hear the different range of people who cherish them. I listen to it repeatedly, she said. The last guy you heard, he said he doesn't listen to it, but he still is comforted just knowing he has it. And that's kind of what I'm talking about. Having something like that to just cherish and have forever. It's a part of them that you can have forever. And man, it adds a lot to their story. It adds a lot to these stories that you're about to hear. Here's the first story. I just wanted to let you know I love you and I'm stuck in this building in New York. There's lots of smoke and you just wanted you to know that I love you always. My dog, Coco, wakes me up somewhere approximately 5.30 in the morning and wants to go for a walk. So at 5.30 in the morning, I get out of bed, brush my teeth, throw some water on my face. We walk through the woods for half an hour, 40 minutes. I say a little prayer uh, every single day and talk to Melissa. So it's just, I, I know she's there. I know she's listening to me. I was the last person from the outside world that she spoke to. I'll always remember that. When you fall asleep sometimes at night and you close your eyes, you can just see her face there saying, Dad, I love you. On September the 11th, Bob Harrington's daughter, Melissa, was in New York for just one day. Age 31, she was a high-powered business executive and was there to oversee the merger of her company. The meeting was on the 101st floor of the North Tower of the World Trade Center. She was only going to be there that Tuesday when the merger was done. She was flying back to California the next day. See, that to me would... Oh, God. I don't know. Like, I would think... There's a similar story, okay? So Seth MacFarlane, he tells a story about how he was supposed to be on one of the flights that actually crashed into the World Trade Centers. But I think for one reason or another, he was hung over or something, and he missed his flight. He just happened to miss the flight. And he kind of, he says that if he thought too much about it, it would kind of drive him crazy. But like, you know, that's, that's a lucky story. But these stories where it's like she was there for one day. She was attending one meeting to discuss that merger between her company and another company. And then she was leaving. She was going to leave the building and by the next morning be out of the city. And she just happened to be there that morning, the hour that that plane hit. And now she's gone. And it these stories are, you know, I can't imagine. I can't imagine. And to lose a 31-year-old, I just don't know. I don't know. You know, that's a fire. I love you, too. I don't know if I'm going to be okay here. I love you so much. We found nothing of Jim. He was completely destroyed. So the fact that I've spoken to him means so much to me. 
I think that the healing process is ongoing. It's important to let people know what families of 9-11 have been experiencing, what we've been going through, what we've gone through. We still have those memories that we don't want anybody to ever forget. Jill Gartenberg had just started a family with her 35-year-old husband, Jim. A successful real estate executive, Jim had recently accepted a promotion at a new company. On September the 11th, he had only gone in to clear his desk at his office on the 86th floor of the North Tower. Saying goodbye, I love you, is the last thing I can remember seeing him walking out the door that morning on September 11th. So you see, so like when you hear that, the message that that guy left, here it is one more time. You know, you hear the fear, you hear the franticness, you, so some people might say, well, do you really want to hear that? Like, is that really the thing you want? The answer is yes. And a resounding yes. You will take anything. And frankly, he said, I love you so much. Those are the things you want to tell people. That's, yes. The answer is yes. All, you, you, there's no recording of my father. Like I said, I would have taken him recording his notes, his, his notes about people's lungs and breathing. I don't give a crap. The whole point is just that you hear them. And if they're saying, I love you so much, and I just want you to know that, you know, I'll always be with you or something. Ah, are you kidding? What better? I mean, like, I get it. It is heartbreaking to hear the fear and the pain and the sometimes you can hear people fading if they're breathing in this smoke you can hear them on the phone just getting weaker and weaker but you want to know what they went through you want to remember them you want to you want to reflect and always always keep in mind you know what they experienced 500 miles away in chicago jim's closest friend adam had only just arrived at work. I turned on CNBC and they said, you know, we go live to the World Trade Center and there was smoke coming out of the building. The first thing I did was call his office. He picked up the phone right away and he had a, a, a voice that I'd never heard before and it was, you know, just utter panic and fear and expletives there's fire there's smoke everywhere there's debris i can't get out you got to get me out of here he had asked what happened and he he didn't know and, and i didn't know jim gartenberg was on the 86th floor of the north tower although he was six floors below the point of impact jim and a colleague were trapped by debris as the floors collapsed above them his comments were then real calm okay what are we supposed to do and I told him, there's fire and it's going up. You need to get down. And he said, I can't go anywhere. The stairs are blown out below us. You know, the debris is too heavy. We can't move anything. What would you say to your friend then? You know what's happening. You can see what's happening. And 
you can see that the building is ablaze and you're saying get you have to get down you, you know get out now and if he's saying i can't then you i mean you probably come to the realization that all right well then this this is probably our last conversation ever oh it was difficult as it was i guarantee you he's happy that he had that conversation he's probably cherishes the fact that he got to talk to him one last time. 15 minutes after the North Tower had been hit, most people in Tower 2, the South Tower, were still at their desks and watching the tragedy unfold. Amongst them was 24-year-old trader Brad Fetched, who left a message for his mother to tell her he was safe. Hey mom, it's Brad. Uh, just wanted to call and let you know. I'm sure that you heard that a plane crashed into World Trade Center One. We're fine. We're in World Trade Center Two. I'm not obviously alive and well over here, but uh, obviously a pretty scary experience. I saw a guy fall out of probably the 91st story all the way down. So <clears throat> you're welcome to give a call here. I think uh, we'll be here all day, but. Uh, He was trying to reassure us that he was okay, but you could tell as he cleared his voice when he talked about seeing someone fall from the 91st floor that there was a lot of fear in his voice. God, hearing his mom, hearing that kid, he was a kid, he was 24. What was he doing? You know, I'm not, I'm about to turn 30 and. When I hear that a 24-year-old was sitting at his desk in the World Trade Center, I'm like, what was that kid doing in the World Trade Center? You know? And to think that he was sitting there, and he was, you could hear that he was uncomfortable and he was totally scared. To think that he was sitting at his desk, he said, we're probably going to be here all day. I'm okay. Give me a call. And just to know that, ten, not, I mean, there was not a long time between the first and the second crash. The towers were hit relatively one after another. And so for that kid to be calling his mom after the first tower was hit, he probably had a matter of five, ten minutes before he was in an inferno. And it's just, I mean, it's just absolutely devastating to think the human loss here on this day in this city. I'm going to play one more story, um, and I, I don't know if I can say it's it's more devastating, I mean, not more devastating, but for some reason it does, I don't know why, it, it just strikes a chord with me, maybe a little more than the others, and I, I, can't, I can't really tell you why, but it's a story about a guy named Stephen calling his mother from the tower. Following a successful career as a college basketball player, Stephen had moved to New York. At 33... He was now a trader with an investment company in the South Tower. September 11th it was a beautiful, beautiful day, as everyone always will remember, I know. I was very pleased to be going to a yoga class around the corner in the village hall. And at the end of the class, I walked home and when I came into this house, there was a blinking light on the answering machine. 
and I had six messages. Not the usual thing. And one of the messages was from Stephen. Mom, it's Stephen. Um, my plane, uh, my building got hit by a plane, and right now it's, uh, I think I'm okay, I'm safe now, but it's smoky. I just want to say how much I love you, and uh, I will uh, call you when I'm safe. Okay, Mom? Bye. Stephen worked in the South Tower. He was on the 89th floor. He said that he was going to call me and that he was going to be all right. There were messages then from people calling to say, Anna, are your children all right? And then there was a message from my husband and he said, promise me you will not turn on the television. And that was an easy promise to make. I just went out in the backyard and I sat in a plastic, you know, those $5 plastic chairs under a tree and with the phone in my lap, preparing myself for what I would need to face. You're on the 88th floor, northwest corner. Okay, now, you get soaking wet towels, and you can put them at the doorway. And you're a two-wheel trade, right? You're going to hand the door. Uh, sorry, you're on the 88th or 88th? I don't know what it is about Stephen's message. I really don't, but for some reason, for some reason, the, his voice, the tone of his voice, just, it really... I don't know. I think it's it's kind of resigned to the fact that he thinks he hopes he's going to be okay, but he doesn't. He doesn't think so. He says there's a lot of smoke, and he says, "I just want to tell you how much I love you." And okay, mom. Okay, mom. Mom, it's Steven. Um, my plane, uh, my building got hit by a plane, and right now it's. Uh, I think I'm okay. I'm safe now, but it's smoky. I just want to say how much I love you. And uh, I will uh, call you when I'm safe. Okay, Mom? Bye. He just sounds terrified. He sounds so scared. Oh, God. These poor people. These poor people. It was a terrible day. It was a day that changed all of us. It was certainly a day that changed the country. And we can say we can sit here and talk about how it changed the TSA and it changed this or that but i mean especially for for the weeks following i mean things were things were so different in america and i mean here's a perfect example this is one of my favorite pieces this is probably one of the best television moments ever david letterman's first show after 911 he was he was sincere. He was poignant. He didn't, he didn't, I mean, he didn't even try to be funny, really. I mean, like, he had Dan Rather on, and Dan Rather got so emotional, and it was just absolutely heartbreaking. If I, you know, am I going to use that word 18,000 times in this episode of The Next Best Thing? Perhaps. But this was a huge television moment. This is David Letterman's first show after 9 11. Thank you very much. 
Welcome to the uh, Late Show. Uh, this is our uh, first show uh, on the air since uh, New York and Washington uh, were attacked. And uh, I, I need to ask your uh, patience and, and indulgence here because uh, I want to say a few things. And uh, believe me, sadly, I'm not going to be saying anything new. And in the past week, uh, others have said what I will be saying here tonight far more eloquently than I'm equipped to, to do. But uh, if we are going to continue to do shows, um, I just need to hear myself talk for a couple of minutes. And so um, that, that's what I'm going to do here. Um, it's terribly sad here in, in New York City. Uh, we, we've lost 5,000 fellow New Yorkers. And you, you can feel it. You can feel it. You can see it. It's terribly sad. Terribly, terribly sad. And watching all of this, I wasn't sure... Uh, that I should be doing a television show because for, for 20 years we've been in, in the city making fun of everything, making fun of the city, uh, making fun of my hair, making fun of Paul, well. <laughs> so to come to this circumstance that is so desperately sad, I, and I don't trust my judgment in, in matters uh, like this, uh, but I'll tell you the reason that uh, I am doing a show and the reason that I am back to work is because of uh, Mayor Giuliani. Uh, very early on, uh, after the attack, and, and how strange does it uh, sound to invoke that phrase, after the attack, um, Mayor Giuliani encouraged us and here lately implored us to, to go back to our lives, go on living, uh, continue trying to make uh, New York City uh, the place that it should be. And because of him, I'm, I'm here tonight. And I just want to say one other thing about Mayor Giuliani. As this began, uh, and if you were like me, and in many respects, God, I hope you're not. <laughs> but in this one small measure, if you're like me, and, and you're watching and you're confused and, and, and depressed and, and irritated and, and angry and full of grief, and you don't know how to behave, and you're not sure what to do, and you don't really, because we've never been through this before, all you had to do at any moment was watch the mayor. Watch how this guy behaved. Watch how this guy conducted himself. Watch what this guy did. Listen to what this guy said. Rudolph Giuliani is the personification of courage. And And it's, it's very simple. There is only one requirement for any of us, and that is to be courageous. Because courage, as you might know, defines all other human behavior. And I believe, because I've done a little of this myself, pretending to be courageous is just as good as, as the real thing. Uh, he's an amazing man and, and far, far better than we could have hoped for. Uh, to, to, to run the city in the midst of this obscene chaos and attack and also demonstrate human dignity. My God, who can do that? That's a pretty short list. Uh, the 20 years that we've been here in New York City, we've worked closely with the police officers and, and the firefighters. And And, and fortunately, uh, most of us don't really have to think too much about what these men and women do on a, on a daily basis. And, and the phrase, New York's finest and New York's bravest, 
you know, did it mean anything to us personally, firsthand? Well, maybe, hopefully, but probably not. But boy, it means something now, doesn't it? They, they put themselves in harm's way to protect people like us. And the, the men and women from the firefighters and the police department who, who are lost are, are going to be missed by this city for a very, very long time. And, I, and my hope for, for myself and everybody else, not only in New York but everywhere, is that we never, ever take these people for granted. Absolutely never take them for granted. I, I just want to uh, go through this, and again, uh, forgive me if this is more for me than, than it is for people watching. Uh, I, I'm sorry, but uh, I just I, I have to go through this. I'm, uh, the, the reason we were attacked, the reason these people are dead, the, these people are missing and dead, and, and they weren't doing anything wrong. They were living their lives. They were going to work. They were traveling. They were doing what they normally do. Uh, as I understand it, and, and my understanding of this is vague at best, uh, another smaller group of people stole some airplanes and crashed them into buildings. And, and we're told that they were uh, zealots uh, fueled by religious fervor. Religious fervor. And if you live to be a thousand years old, will that make any sense to you? Will that make any goddamn sense? He's a thoughtful guy. And that was a very important episode. You're listening to The Next Best Thing. We've been remembering 9-11 something that we should we really do every day in America but that we certainly do on days like this the 16 year anniversary of the attack on America we're just about out of time for the night but you know I haven't said anything about Donald Trump I really haven't said anything about the news tonight but how did Donald Trump remember 9/11 I don't know and I don't care but you know who does know and who can tell you who else? Keith Olbermann. Let's hear how Trump remembered 9-11. I'm Keith Olbermann, and this is The Resistance. I am not somebody who believes in mandatory memorials to pain. The phrase, never forget, has always troubled me. Not that we should not remember, but that to not let the grief soften with time is to punish ourselves and to embitter our lives. Once, six or seven years ago, I got through half the day off social media and without the television or the computer on, and I was startled that I had not noticed that it was the anniversary. And behind that emotion of regret, almost a sense of having betrayed somebody, I was a little relieved that the clenched mixture of fear and sadness that marked the earliest of the commemorations had relaxed its grip on me and I hoped on others. The militarization of the memory the way so many have exploited it and exploit it still for their own purposes and the politicizing of it, that still angers me. But to me, sitting here recording this in the New World Trade Center, thinking of a previous one in which I worked in my 20s, thinking of my college classmates, Eamon McEnany and Mike Tanner in Building One and my friend Dave Petorti's brother Jim, and thinking of Tom Pecorelli, who was my cameraman at Fox Sports and who was on Flight 11, and a hockey acquaintance named Garnet Ace Bailey, who was on Flight 175, and Barbara Olson, who I had known when she was a frequent guest the first time I was on MSNBC, who was on Flight 77. Thinking of them, and thinking of walking the streets of this city covering that horrible day with Times Square terrifyingly quiet at 6 o'clock at night, and the city frighteningly hushed for months afterwards, thinking of the wail of sirens I heard at 11 o'clock this morning and how the sounds of sirens will always be different on the same day every year. 
thinking of all of them and all of that, not all day, but a part of every day the calendar comes around to this day, I do have this one question. How could the man we are forced to call the President of the United States, who lives on Twitter, who might no longer exist if Twitter somehow vanished tomorrow, how could he have not sent a tweet at 8.46 this morning, or at 9.03, or 9.37, or 9.59, or 10.03, or 10.28? How do you not send out a tweet the morning of 9.11? How do you not send out a tweet the morning of 9.11 on your first 9.11 in office? How, when you have a social media director who can and who has tweeted for you, do you not send out a tweet the morning of 9-11? Of course, as the Bloomberg television correspondent David Gura reported, Trump did talk the morning of 9-11. He kept speaking at the Pentagon as the 9:58 and 10:03 moments of silence had already begun. But back to this simpler issue. How, when given the manner in which demographics change, 9-11 has long since replaced the Kennedy assassination or the Challenger explosion or anything else as the life-changing moment in the psyche of the average American, and how social media has replaced television and everything else as the means of conveying and commemorating things like that. How did Trump not send out a tweet on the morning of 9-11? How could it have waited for him until two in the afternoon? This man tweets constantly, promotes books by disgraced sheriffs, promotes himself on Twitter, threatens an FBI director he fired on Twitter, threatens North Korea on Twitter, is still tweeting insults and retweeting mindless memes about his opponent in an election that in eight weeks will be a year ago, an election that is receding into history. He has two accounts, and no matter how reportedly bloated with fake followers and bots they might be, he can use them to have direct access to 58 million followers, a potential audience that dwarfs whatever total he might have reached on the anniversary on television. And he didn't tweet on the morning of 9-11. When they say never forget, this is what they're talking about. Shame on you. Okay. <laughs> I mean, I hate Twitter. I don't. I certainly don't like Trump. But come on. I mean, whatever. Okay. So this has been a heavy episode. I realize that. You know, we're going to be back to having a lot of fun next week. Now, before we go, we have some things that I should remind you of. As always, these are important things. So just hear me out, okay? You can tweet at us. We are at Next Best Radio. That's at Next Best Radio. Go ahead and like us on Facebook. Follow us on Facebook. A lot of stuff gets posted on our Facebook page, stuff that we talk about in any given episode. Usually goes up on our Facebook page. That's Facebook.com slash NBT Radio. Also, if you're really feeling like you want to go all out and write it's more than 140 characters, more than something you'd feel comfortable posting on a Facebook wall. You can always feel free to send us an email. We are at nextbestthing at radiofreebrooklyn.org. And lastly, we do ask you to remember that we are fully listener 
and producer, supported. If you like what you hear on Radio Free Brooklyn, if you like what you hear tonight, please consider going to our website, going to this show's page, and donating a little something-something to keep us in business. You can go to rfb.nyc slash nbt. Again, that's rfb.nyc slash nbt. And the last thing I'll tell you is that all episodes of The Next Best Thing are now available on iTunes as podcasts. Holy crap, that is huge news. It actually happened weeks ago, but every time I say it, I just get a little excited because it's huge. Stop freaking excited! If you ever miss an episode of The Next Best Thing, uh, you can go to the iTunes store or check the podcast app on your iPhone. Just type in The Next Best Thing, click on our logo, which I trust you know, and there you will find literally all of the past episodes. You'll see the title so you can pick and choose which ones pique your interest or which ones just simply sound the most bearable. Listen to those. And if you have a few minutes, rate us, review us, tell a friend, tell a relative, tell an enemy, do whatever you got to do to spread the word because the word of mouth is how we grow. Okay, so, and that's really serious. I know I say that in every episode, but I think people think I'm just kind of flippant about it. Uh, Really, we do need support here. We have no money, so... (laughs) So if you do like what you hear, please do consider, if not if not sponsoring this show, going to RadioFreeBrooklyn.com and just donating to support the station because we really do need it. So that's going to do it for us this week on The Next Best Thing. As always, thank you so much for listening. I love you so much for listening. I need you so much for listening. And remember, apathy is the enemy. I can't stress it enough. Apathy, more than anything else, is the enemy. <laughs> enemy. Apathy is the enemy. Take action. Care. Watch the news. Stay informed. Have an opinion. Take action. Do something. Maybe make a change. For Radio Free Brooklyn, this is the next best thing. I'm Jonathan B. Lerner. Good night.